This week I came across a weird story, an example of a type of cryptid tale that I've not heard before. Supposedly, in about 1920, a French consul named Galan, based in Vladivostok in the extreme east of Russia, was told by a Russian trapper that animals resembling the prehistoric woolly mammoth still roamed in the vast wilderness of the Siberian taiga forest. The clincher was that the trapper recognised the animal only as being a type of elephant, as he had no knowledge of the prehistoric animal. It's a story that's ridiculous, impossible, surely not even worth following up on. Siberia is vast, but the idea that it could support a population of enormous mystery animals that have escaped detection for so long seems like a zoological no-hoper. And yet, I find the notion fascinating. I've long read about legendary living dinosaurs in the Congo and mystery hominids in the Pacific Northwest and the Russian steppe, but here was an entirely different strand of cryptozoological folklore that was new to me. I needed to know more. Was this a single stray story, or was it part of an established canon? Were there, in fact, whole herds of living mammoth stories to be unearthed? And why do we humans feel the need to believe in these impossible animals? This journey was to take me to childhood monster books, the work of mid-20th century monster hunters, and of course, Victorian-era fantastic fiction. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and I'm recording from the porch at the Cabin in the Woods, somewhere in wild, woolly West Cork. It's an uncharacteristically sunny day, and for this episode, I've cracked open a Red Bay Ale from Galway Bay Brewery, a place I'm sure has had no mammoth sightings at all. So get yourself settled for this episode, Sightings of Living Mammoths, Kind of a Big Deal. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. I'm just back from checking my trail camera, which I've had up in a small forested area not too far away from the cabin for about four days, which I was hoping would be enough to catch something interesting. Unfortunately, there wasn't anything on it besides pictures of myself setting it up and taking it down again, but I'm going to continue undaunted. Chances are the things I'm likely to spot would be uh, various ordinary birds and forest animals. Hopefully, if I'm clever about where I put it, I'm hoping to get some badger activity. So I'm not going to say too much about exactly where the camera is because uh, I'm not keen on people uh, interfering with animals like that. But of course, the hope always exists that you will catch something really strange or really unusual. And um, perhaps uh, subconsciously, that's one of the reasons why I got my trail camera. But Speaking of unusual photographs, uh, unusual videos of strange creatures, in 2012, um, noted terrible paper The Sun, of all people, dropped a short video that appeared to show an animal that looks like a prehistoric mammoth crossing a river in where was claimed to be Siberia. Now, the footage isn't bad, actually. If you're a fan of these kind of silly videos of uh, UFOs or, or, you know, mystery animals... Yeah, it's a pretty good-looking one. Um, so some of the details associated with it, they, they it's claimed to have been from a quote-unquote government engineer in Siberia's Chukotka Autonomous Okrug region who was surveying 
a road project out in the wilderness and saw this animal uh, coming out of the forest on one side of a river and crossing it and making its way to the other. Um, I will put a link to the video in the show notes. It's a pretty good one. Um, I think today you have to take these things with a pinch of salt, always because of the ever-present chance of fakery using CGI and stuff like that. There has been some discussion of this video by people trying to debunk it, and some people think that it is CGI. Some people think it's a bear carrying a fish. So once you look at the video with that in mind, it really does look like a bear with the supposed trunk of the animal actually being a fish sticking out of the front of the bear's mouth. And there's some good videos online with people taking this to task and chances are it's one of those two things. So what what do we know about this video for sure? Um, It's so blurry that it could really be either. But we know that it is actually been... It's it's an altered bit of tape by a fellow by the name of uh, Ludovic Petho, who's an Australian filmmaker and he was a guy who was cross it really was in Siberia and he had a bit of an interesting project that he was working on he was crossing uh, Siberia's Cyan Mountains and making a documentary about his own grandfather's um, escape from a Siberian prison camp in 1915 and his grandfather then made his way across uh, Siberia to get to Budapest I believe so uh, this fellow Petho was trying to recreate his own grandfather's voyage and amongst, so he was traveling, I think, for 10 days across these mountains uh, by himself, which would be amazing. I, I would be delighted to get the opportunity to do something in such a remote place. Um, and one bit of footage of that he took of this particular river, he says, he claims that he recognized this in the mammoth footage that's come out since. He says he can tell that it's the same bit of footage, but with this animal sort of stuck into it. So one way or another, it's it's a fake if this fellow is indeed telling the truth. So um, that caught my eye this week because I've just received in the post uh, a book of monsters which I had as a kid. It's called The Spine-Chilling Book of Monsters and it was, I'm pretty sure, one of my first books I had about uh, monsters when I was a kid. I used to check this out of the library constantly when I was little. I used to get it week after week after week and I'm nearly sure that this was my first encounter with so many classic creatures from folklore, from mythology, and from cryptozoology as well. It's from 1988, and it's written by Rupert Matthews, uh, and it says, Consultant Francis X. King, which, you know, whatever that means. It's a fantastic book. Uh, it Primarily, the illustrations are amazing. It is written for kids, so the, the text is quite simple, but it has a range of wonderful illustrations, really stirring dramatic ones and they're quite sensationalist a lot of there's a lot of blood and gore and it's exactly the kind of thing that a kid who is into horror movies or monsters um would really enjoy and i read i read this over and over and over cover to cover and this is the first time i've seen it in you know over 20 years probably and there's a few little bits in it that i had forgotten about so I don't have strong memories of this particular story that I'm about to read, but there's a page about, there's a chapter about, you know, Bigfoot and Yeti and stuff like that, as you'd expect. And there's a chapter on the the Almasti, who are the sort of regional Central Asian slash Russian variant of the Bigfoot or the, the Sasquatch. Which, which is a very common thing. Any book about mystery animals will have something about the Almas, the Almasti. 
So they're a well-covered topic, but here in this book, Spine-Chilling Book of Monsters, I found a little something that I have not seen much of in my other monster books, and this one had completely slipped my memory. And this is about uh, kind of legendary stories of surviving mammoths, and this really captured my imagination. This was almost like discovering a new cryptid. I I hadn't realised there was um, a sort of a tradition of of this. So here's what Spine-Chilling Monsters has to say. The vast Siberian forest covers about 7 million square kilometres. Very few people live in the largely unexplored wilderness. A few mining camps have been established near mineral deposits, and some native hunters make a living in the forests. But otherwise, the region is uninhabited. It would not be difficult for a creature, even as large as a mammoth, to remain hidden in such an area. Several local tales speak of a large animal living in the forest, but more specific was the account of a grizzled old Russian trapper who told his tale to a Frenchman visiting Russia in 1920. According to the Russian, he was in a remote region of the forest when he came across huge tracks belonging to a four-legged animal. Each footprint was 60 centimetres across. Intrigued, the man decided to follow the trail. After pushing through the forest for several days, the man suddenly came across his quarry. He thought he recognised it from pictures he had seen. It was a huge elephant with big white tusks, very curved. It had fairly long hair. The hunter could not imagine what an elephant was doing in Siberia. As far as he knew, elephants are only found in tropical regions. He knew nothing about prehistoric mammoths. One point which seems to indicate that the man may have been telling the truth stands out. He claims to have met the mammoth in the forest. At the time of the encounter, scientists thought that mammoths lived on open plains. It is only recently that their true lifestyle has been discovered. So that's the uh, story as I found it in Spine Chilling Book of Monsters. I had no memory of it and this is for all intents and purposes a brand new mystery for me to get stuck into. I'm always interested in tracing the origins um, of stories like this one. It also comes with a, a fantastically evocative drawing of sort of primitive man hunting mammoths uh, on the plains of the ancient world and the the text says do scenes like this still occur somewhere in remote Siberia oh which was must have been very thrilling to me as a youngster though I don't have strong memories of it but this is ticking all of my boxes so I had to go and investigate so let's talk a little bit about uh, mammoth so a obviously extinct animals they're elephant like and in fact, we'll separate mastodons and mammoths briefly. A mastodon is um, primarily uh, an American, North American animal, depending on how broadly you want to do your classification. If you consider certain other types of um, elephantine animal to be in the group of mastodons, then you do get into the Eurasian area as well. But mostly we're not talking about mastodons, we're talking about mammoths. And to compare them briefly, the mammoth... The woolly mammoth, we'll say, which is like the, the the most the youngest form of that family, is Mammothus uh, primigenius. I think I'm saying correctly, and they're about that they were about the size of a modern African elephant. So they're a bit bigger than the mastodon. They're the ones, the classic ones you'll see with the big humped back, the very large cranium, and the very very large curved tusks. And those lived uh, right across the what's now the Siberian taiga, which is. Um, the, the forest biome that you get way up north in Eurasia. 
Another difference between um, Mastodon and Mammoths, which I think ties in, I think this story is making a reference to, is that the Mastodons, we now think, probably lived in forest based on their diet, and the Mammoth was living on the open plains of the sort of Ice Age uh, era. So let's a quick word about timings. So the Mammoth uh, was living from the Pliocene up until the, the Holocene. The Holocene is what we now, is, is the era that we're living in now. This is a relatively new term, which basically means the tail end of the, of the Anthropocene, well, Anthropocene, I suppose, is probably the, the newest version of this term. So it's basically the era of man. Um, and we reckon that the latest woolly mammoths were still alive up until about 4,000 years ago in a few key places. That puts them as being basically still alive way up north at the time that the Egyptians were building the pyramids, which is crazy, you know, they're coming right up into recorded history there, which makes them sort of like a border, a border animal that kind of straddles the line between ancient and and prehistoric and mystical and then recorded history, which maybe is one of the reasons why they did eventually start to show up in kind of folkloric tales and why ideas that they might still be alive somewhere um, took off and, and gained a little bit of traction. Some of the places that they were living right up until the end, really, really remote islands way up north in, in Russia's border with the Arctic Ocean, places like St. Paul Island and Wrangell Island. In terms of taxonomy as well, um, the mammoths are a lot closer to extant elephants, Asian elephants in particular, so they are very closely related, whereas the mastodon is actually quite different. So if you're able to get a picture, I'll put a picture in the show notes, of the taxonomic tree of those and you can see how different they really are but to get into the cryptozoological side of things so stories about living mammoths have shown up over the last couple of hundred years i'm taking a look at the encyclopedia of cryptozoology which is a wiki but it does uh, show its sources which means i'm able to track down where a lot of these stories come from so we have some uh, questionable stories first from quite far back in antiquity there's one from 579 AD in China it says a gigantic elephant with long black hair was supposedly captured in Yanzhou China in commemoration of this event the era name was changed to Dangxiang great elephant now that's from mystery creatures of China by Coach Whip. I don't have a copy of that one myself, so I can't really take that story any further. But stories from that far back, I think you always have to take very carefully because you don't know the cultural context. You don't. You have to rely on translations of people who you don't. You don't know how good they were or whether they're missing out on some key context from the time. So while interesting, I, I don't put too much stock in stories that go that far back. There's another story here from 1580. A police mission of Cossacks under Yermak Timofeyevich was dispatched to Siberia to restore order at a Stroganov salt mine, which was being repeatedly pillaged by brigands. This expedition would eventually lead to the Russian conquest of Siberia. Near to the beginning of the mission, Timofeyevich reported seeing a large hairy elephant beyond the Urals, which the natives told him was one of the treasures of the Khanate of Sibir, which was much valued as food resulting in the name Mountain of Meat. Now this comes from uh, On the Track of Unknown Animals, which is uh, Bernard Heuvelman's book about, probably his most famous book. Heuvelman's was a 
a French researcher into what was to become known as cryptozoology. He's one of the first people to use that term. And his books are largely the main books he wrote that were still that were very important were in the 1950s. Um, Huvelman's he's important because he was early and he's important because he was writing at a time when it wasn't easy to get information about this stuff. So he was very foundational and a lot of the stuff he came up with was repeated by later writers. But also he wasn't I, I, I take anything he writes um, a little bit with with a pinch of salt as well. He wasn't the most rigorous of researchers and he definitely had something of an agenda and he definitely wanted to make these stories out to be as um, mysterious sounding as they could be. So he's an important collector of information but I would not like to rely on him alone for the source of a story. Now we come to what I think is the basis of the story that I read at the beginning from Spine Chilling Monsters and it says one of the most detailed and, in some views, most convincing reports of a surviving mammoth comes from 1920, when a Russian hunter recounted a sighting of a pair of hairy elephants, which he had come across in the forest in 1918, to Monsieur Galland, the French consul at Vladivostok. The unnamed hunter had spent four years in a region of vast taiga, where people rarely ventured, and Galland described him as, quote, almost literate, when he mentioned the name Mammoth to the hunter after hearing his story, the man did not show the least sign that he understood what I meant. See, that's important. They, they, every version of this story mentions that the, the, the illiterate hunter couldn't possibly have known what a prehistoric mammoth was. In fact, the only frame of reference he ever has for the creature he sees is an African elephant. Our source for this, again, is Huvelman's, but it's also a Carl Schuker book called in Search of Prehistoric Survivors from 1995. Schuker is, I would put him at the upper end of the believer researchers. He does his homework, um, he has a lot of detail, he travels, he interviews people. So while I might disagree with him on interpretations of everything, I would take the details that he provides as being generally pretty reliable. So the hunter told Galan that during his second year in the taiga, he noticed a trail of huge tracks, followed by a dung heap. Now we have a direct quote from uh, uh, Huvelman's book. I say huge tracks, for they were a long way larger than any of those I had often seen of animals I knew well. It was autumn. There had been a few big snowstorms, followed by heavy rain. It wasn't freezing yet. The snow had melted, and there were thick layers of mud in the clearings. It was one of these big clearings, partly taken up by a lake, that I was staggered to see a huge footprint pressed deep into the mud. It must have been about 70 centimetres across the widest part, and about 50 centimetres the other way. There were four tracks, the tracks of four feet, the first two about four metres from the second pair. Then the tracks suddenly turned east, and I went into the forest of middle-sized elms. Where it went in, I saw a huge heap of dung. I had a good look, and I saw that it was made up of vegetable matter. Some ten feet up, just where the animal had gone into the forest, I saw a sort of row of broken branches made by the monster's enormous head as it forced its way into the place. The hunter followed the track for days, sometimes seeing where the animal had stopped in some grassy clearing and then had gone on forever eastward. Eventually he discovered another track almost exactly the same coming from the north and crossing the original track. 
From the look of the tracks, the hunter deduced that both animals had been either excited or upset at their meeting, and had then set out eastwards, one following some 20 metres behind the other. So it mentions that the weather is getting cold, he keeps himself warm by drinking tea and building a fire, but eventually um, he comes close enough to see one of the animals, and he writes, All of a sudden, I saw one of the animals quite clearly, and now I must admit I really was afraid. It had stopped among some young saplings. It was a huge elephant with big white tusks, very curved. It was a dark chestnut colour, as far as I could see. It had fairly long hair on the hind quarters, but it seemed shorter on the front. I must say I had no idea that there were such big elephants. It had huge legs and moved very slowly. I've only seen elephants in pictures, but I must say that even from this distance, I could never have believed any beast could be so big. The second beast was around. I saw it only a few times among the trees. It seemed to be the same size. He set down his bag and readied both his gun and his axe for protection, and continued to observe the animals. When evening came, it became too cold for him to stay, and he reluctantly left. When he returned the next morning, the animals were gone, and since winter had set in and the weather had become bitterly cold, he gave up on tracking them, and left to find a sheltered place to spend the winter. Just a couple of details here directly from Huvelman's book that I thought were interesting. He says that when Galan returned to France that same year, uh, this is the French guy who's been told the story by the tracker, he told his strange tale to his friends, but the political situation after the revolution was so confused that there was no hope of exploration. Not until 1946, when the Allies were still warm friends in the first flush of victory, was he persuaded to publish this story. So, the story originally is supposed to have happened in 1918. It's not mentioned or told to anybody or written down until at least 1946. So we have quite a gap there. And we also have the friend of a friend effect, so classically related such a classic part of any kind of folklore or urban legend so we have the hunter telling Galan Galan tells his friends but not for 20 years so we're quite distant from the original story and it also says here this report is very different from those of the tribes who live on the shores of the Arctic Ocean where mammoth carcasses have merely been seen emerging from melting glaciers the best evidence to my mind of the truth of the story is that the hunter says he met his mammoths in the forest, a place which is not usually supposed to be their natural habitat. Had he, or Monsieur Galant, been inventing the story, he would surely have tried to give his tale authenticity by putting it in the traditional setting that one sees in all the reconstructions, the great hairy beast advancing with heavy steps through a desert of snow. This is a very unusual background for the animal. So here is uh, Bernard Huvelmans trying to make the story sound more realistic by saying, oh, he, you know, the, the guy's citing um, tallies with current ideas about, uh, ideas about the science of where these animals lived. Um, and I presume he's talking from his own time in the 1950s when he writes on the track of unknown animals. Uh, whether or not he's being that precise about whether it's a mammoth or a mastodon, I really can't say. But our current science, as I mentioned at the beginning, was that mastodons do indeed, we th or we think, probably did live in forests, whereas the mammoth probably did live on the open plains. But uh, I really don't know to which Huvelmans thinks he's writing. I know that non-scientific writers aren't always specific about that difference. 
Now we have another exam. I think the next story I'm going to tell about mammoths comes from Nick Redfern. Redfern, this is from a book called The Most Mysterious Places on Earth. He's a British writer of The Strange. I'd put him... He, he's, he's definitely a believer and he's not as critical as I would like. He's pretty good in terms of details. He's a tireless traveler, researcher, and writer. He's incredibly prolific, and he really goes out of his way to collect stories that nobody else has. He goes to the places where they happened. He talks to the people they happened to. So I do have respect for him as a researcher in, in that sense. You can usually, I think, you can generally rely on his detail, but I would probably disagree with him on interpretation. He's a little more open to strange things or maybe not quick enough to take into account alternate explanations. He writes books. He, he deeply cares about what he's doing, I believe, but I think he's writing his books with a kind of a sense of fun in mind rather than a particularly investigative, I think is the word. He's not such an investigative uh, way of doing things. But he does he does provide a plethora of interesting stories. So this is the next one from his book, Most Mysterious Places on Earth. Chronologically, this happens in 1936. He says, We now have to focus upon the saga of Grigory Tilov, a mountaineer who maintained he encountered two such creatures in 1936 at the foot of Mount Elbrus, the tallest peak in the Caucasus Mountains. So we're now quite far away from our original location in Siberia, but still a, a Central Asian pretty wild area which has a reputation for cryptids of various kinds and also was a, a hive of Almasty encounters at certain points in the 19th and 20th centuries. But, so Mount Elbrus, the tallest peak in the Caucasus Mountains at more than 18,000 feet. According to Tilov, who related his story in the early 1960s to Felix Ziegel, a doctor of science at the Moscow Aviation Center and a man who, in 1967, took part in the Soviet Union's first formal study of the UFO mystery, he was about to scale at least parts of the mountain on one particular morning in the summer of 1936, when he was stopped in his tracks by the jaw-dropping sight of two small mammoths lumbering along at a slow pace, approximately 300 feet from him. Even at that distance, said Tilov, there was no mistaking their unique identity. He quickly pulled out his binoculars for a better look, and sure enough, he was not wrong. The mammoth, believed dead for so long by so many, was still among us, but not, perhaps, for too long. As the animals got closer, to within about 50 feet, but seemingly paying no attention to the astonished climber, Tilov could see that both mammoths were very thin, displayed evidence of significant hair loss, walked slowly and wearily, and were clearly undernourished. Although Tilov possessed a rifle, he told Ziegel that he never even once thought about using it, and what he considered to be a pair of amazing animals that it was a privilege to have encountered. Given their emaciated states, Tilov speculated that perhaps they were the very last of their kind, fated to early death from starvation at the foot of the Caucasus Mountains. And just maybe he was right. A kind of a new element is introduced with this story. I can't find much evidence uh, beyond Nick Redfern's account as to where this story might have come from, but there's a lovely wistful note to it. The attitude, I think it was probably always there, even in the older stories. The implication being that the mammoth, the 
that is, is spotted in all of these stories is, you know, the last one or the last two of their kind. And, and there's a kind of a wistfulness and a sadness in all of these stories. The idea that, you know, you travel to this incredibly remote place and you happen to be the last person to see this magnificent beast. And, and yet there's a kind of a sadness to it. And I think it's always been there under the surface in those other accounts, but it really is brought to the fore here. Uh, Tilov is, is the first narrator of one of these stories who openly says, you know, I couldn't bring myself to hunt it or I couldn't bring myself to kill it because it's 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 already on the way out. This is the last one. Which makes me think of, you know, things that Bigfoot hunters like Peter Byrne used to say in, in the 50s and 60s, you know, what if the what if the one that you shoot were the last one there is, you know, when it comes to the old do you kill it or do you not argument. <laughs> so also note here that this story is being brought to us through the medium of, you know, a UFO guy. So doesn't necessarily mean I would automatically discount it, just means, well, people who study weird things like other weird things. And if they're the only people saying the weird thing, then it just makes me, I would like to hear it from somebody else as well. And um, before I take it too seriously, like I said, I can't find any other sources for this story, but I like it a lot. It's very, it's very evocative and it adds a new element to the, to the sort of mammoth um, narrative. The Encyclopedia of Cryptozoology has a few more uh, reports scattered throughout the rest of the 20th century that I want to mention briefly. I haven't found much other information about them, but they're, they're short, but they're evocative. In 1944, a number of pilots flying from Alaska to Moscow in 19, yeah, in 1944 are reported to have seen a herd of mammoths walking single file in the snow. That's a very powerful evocative image. In 1956, a schoolmistress at a small village near Russia's Taz River claimed to have encountered a mammoth in 1956 while picking mushrooms. She said that the animal approached within 10 metres of her. A hunter claimed to have seen two groups of mammoths each consisting of three individuals, in 1989. And finally, uh, in 1998, a party of gold prospectors reported seeing a herd of mammoths near a tributary of the Indigurka River in Yakutia. And that takes us up to the 2012 uh, video. So this is not a very well-known strain of weird thinking. This is not a very famous cryptid. This doesn't have a very uh, established set of lore built up around it but there is a small core there of sightings that have you know trickled in over the years it looks like the high point was early in the 20th century and um, when ideas like this were still happening i think we're always drawn to remote places and i think uh, the belief that there are large dramatic animals living in them you know holdovers from prehistoric times kind of makes us feel that you know maybe we haven't explored everywhere yet and maybe there's adventure still to be had in later decades, since we've become more ecologically aware of the destruction that we're bringing to the Earth, I think these stories also function to make us feel a little bit better. Because if, you know, the Mokila Membe dinosaur is still out there somewhere, or if Bigfoot or a mammoth could still be existing, then, you know, we maybe we haven't done that much damage. It, it kind of, it makes me a little sad to think that if, for example, Bigfoot did exist, he would be highly highly endangered by now and the amount of sightings that were happening in the 1960s would have been much higher than they would be now so were he still around he would be in in, in much smaller numbers than he was so i think these stories have a powerful emotional component to them i think we need them i think we need these monsters 
for various reasons. But I'm going to cast right back to the end of the 19th century for my last uh, dipping into this legend. And this is a fictional account, but I think it's a fictional account firstly informed by the real life stories that were floating around and then one that itself was to prove influential, I think, on the stories that came afterwards. So here are the, de here are the details. In, in 1899, a man claiming to be named Henry Tuckerman writes a short story in McClure's magazine. The story is called The Killing of the Mammoth. In the story, Tuckerman is prospecting in Alaska. So again, the location has changed. It's an American magazine, so he wants to set his story somewhere in the most remo remote part of America to make it interesting to readers, presumably. And he tells a story about meeting a hunter, a, a native hunter. And the hunter tells him a story that happened to him about a mammoth that he found and killed. So the details of the story are that the hunter and his son are traveling in remote part of Alaska. When they start, they come across footprints and they hear stories about an animal that the local natives call the Tikai Koa. And they're following it for days and days. They're keeping themselves warm with campfires and stopping off every night. And if these details sound familiar, I, I think they should. Um, eventually, they discover a unique piece of biology associated with the animal, which is that they come to believe it's attracted to fire. And they think this is because the elephant stamps out forest fires when they're small to prevent them from getting big and damaging its habitat. So they eventually come across the mammoth itself by setting a fire. Then they, they manage to lure it to the fire. They're hiding in a tree and they shoot it and they kill it. And when they kill it, they're overcome with, with sadness and remorse for the murder of what they presume to be the last of a majestic species. So here we have some of these common tropes again within the mammoth stories. And then, uh, from a National Geographic article I found about what happened in, in real life, it says, Paul and Tuchman, in the story, skinned their prize and collected its bones, taking measurements of the mammoth's internal organs as they went. The two stayed in the Mammoth Valley for the winter, and once warmer spring weather began to clear their path, Tuchman and Paul transported the collected remains out by sleigh. Tuchman had no doubt that the bones and hide would be of great interest to museums all over the world. But the best offer came from a man called Conradi, the man who had put a gag order on Tuchman until 1899. The plan was for Tuchman to stay silent while Conradi presented the mammoth as a discovery he had made himself. As he affirmed several times in his piece, the skeleton was donated to the Smithsonian, where it could be appreciated by some of the nation's finest scientists. Now this story seems to have taken on a life of its own at the very end of the century. People really believed that this had happened uh, and apparently the Smithsonian for years had to fend off uh, uh, people who wanted to find out whether the mam mammoth was real, people who wanted to go and see it and they had to publish uh, accounts saying that it wasn't real. McClure's, ag uh, McClure's magazine also had to publish um, a disclaimer saying that the story was fiction and they had never intended it to be a hoax. But as, as we find so many times in the study of the strange, people want to believe. There had been fake newspaper reports prior to this about live mammoths as well. Um, this was just a few steps further. It was more developed. It was written by a professional, so it might have, uh, it might have had more of an influence. But the 1890s in particular was a crazy time for newspapers, particularly in America, 
publishing all sorts of crazy stories. I've had it described as saying that looking back at these newspaper articles now and taking them seriously, stuff like the the airship hoaxes and the moon hoax and, and that sort of thing, um, it's a bit like if somebody in the future was looking at, you know, the National Enquirer or the Weekly World News and taking that stuff seriously. Uh, audiences at the time understood the context in which this stuff was written, that it was a bit of a joke, even though they didn't always state as much. Uh, so I think some of us have lost the context now for looking at these old stories, but at the same time, the, the want to believe was still there. And I think that a lot of the stories that we've talked about in this episode that came in the 20th century have their roots perhaps in this McClure uh, killing of the mammoth story. There is then a, a bit of background here from the National Geographic article. So in 1885, a zoologist named Charles Haskins Townsend was on a ship called the Corwin, which uh, stops off uh, near the on the American side of the Bering Strait. And uh, a group of natives, uh, Native Americans, came on with mammoth tusks and bones, which, you know, they tend to find up there. He asked them whether they'd come from living or dead animals, and he was told that they were not from living animals, but the natives didn't exactly know what kind of animal they were from. But Townsend, being a, a zoologist, he recognises that it's some sort of elephant-like animal, and probably a mammoth, which, you know, American scientists were aware of at the time. So he drew pictures and gave them to the natives of mammoths to show them what the animal might have looked like when it was alive. And years later, Townsend speculated that perhaps these people had taken the drawings and spread them around to different groups of people and that they, the knowledge of what the mammoth looked like when alive must have travelled across the continent. Basically, he was trying to explain these weird stories where people who had never, who had no knowledge of the paleontology of mammoth were able to describe living animals as if they had seen them. But I don't think you need to suppose that this knowledge came from, you know, colonial scientists because native people were finding actual frozen mammoth all the time up in the north and we still find them and they're, because they're relatively recently uh, dead animals and because they're preserved by the ice, they look just like really close to what they did when they were living. So I I actually think I actually find that more of a convincing explanation than, you know, this one time I gave a guy a picture and that picture traveled across the whole continent to everybody. But that could be just me. Finally, I'm just going to say a few things about uh, de-extinction. We're going to have a little Jurassic Park Michael Crichton moment. You will often hear stories about bringing mammoths back to life. It would be, I suppose you could say it would be a lot simpler than bringing dinosaurs back we have access to a lot more genetic material they're obviously very close to modern day um, in Indian elephants and something like 99% of their genes are shared and identical so but again it gets into the whole issue of well what is de-extinction all you're really doing is genetically engineering a contemporary animal with elements of a prehistoric one so that you produce this hybrid that you know has some elements effectively it's a, it's an elephant that has some elements of a mammoth so it has the hair or it has the size or the shape is it really is it really a mammoth are you really recreating a, an extinct species in in the true sense of the phrase i don't know i don't know i mean people have argued doing the same thing with passenger pigeons and lots of other animals as well it depends on what you do with them i'd prefer honestly that we we keep our efforts on not you know devastating animals that are already on the earth because you're creating these new things what are you going to do with them where are you going to put them 
the most grandiose proposal which has been put forward is something called Pleistocene Park, which would be some vast area of Siberia that would be turned into a kind of a crazy prehistoric theme park where you could go and see mammoths. I mean, pretty cool. I won't say that's not exciting. I, I would hope uh, that such a surely money-making racket would be turned... I, I would hope that the money would be used for you know, conservation purposes for other animals and uh, keeping the habitat pristine. But yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, uh, as far as I know, we're actually, it sounds like a simple thing to do, but we're quite far away from that at the moment. But there are a few teams uh, working on it. Oddly enough, the Russians are not prominent in this. It's mostly like the Japanese and the Koreans seem to have put in most of the legwork, but I feel like we're quite a ways away from that um, at the moment. Anyway, thanks for listening. My name is Kean. This has been White Atlantic Weird. If you like what you hear, get in touch with us on at Strange Ireland. That's what we're called on Twitter, at least. Please share the episode with anyone who you think might like it. We could use more listeners. We could use more interaction. If you have any ideas for episodes, we'll be delighted to consider them. If you have anything funny or silly or spooky or weird to say to us, uh, get in touch. We'll read them out on the episode. So thanks for listening and we will catch you next time. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.